Hey guys, welcome to episode seven of Rolling for Change. This time around, we are talking with Joseph Butler about his master creation, Mageling, which is now up on Kickstarter and will fund in a few days. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoy what Joseph has to offer, please, please go and support his Kickstarter for Mageling. That's M-A-G-E-L-I-N-G. We also talk very briefly in this episode about Gamerama. We only talk briefly because in the very near future, we're going to have a discussion with Ward Batty, who is the, I'd say, the kingpin father of our gaming community here in Atlanta, Georgia. He puts on three conventions, and we're excited to have him along for the ride in the very near future. Uh, In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's episode of Rolling for Change. And as always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, please send them to gamers at rollingforchange.com. Here we go. Welcome to Rolling for Change. My name is Woody Harris. I am joined by my co-host, Brian Peace. And, Hello. And we have a special guest with us today, Mr. Joseph Butler. Hello, uh, my name is Joseph Butler, and I designed a game called Mageling, which is on Kickstarter right now. And uh, I also have an interest in therapy, so I thought this might be a nice conversation. Yeah, actually, uh, Brian and I were playing a game with Joseph at uh, Gamerama last night, which is a convention we're going to talk about a little bit. And uh, we got to talking at the end of the game. Turned out he was a game designer and he had a Kickstarter that he was working on. And then I found out he had a background in therapy. So everything clicked and I was like, oh my God, you need to be here for this podcast. I will apologize in advance. My voice is gone as a result of spending a lot of time talking at Gamerama. But I will talk to you anyway. So uh, we're just going to start out by talking a little bit about our convention experience. We just came back from a four-day convention called Gamerama that's held here in Atlanta once a year. It's part of a, a series of uh, conventions in Atlanta run by Mr. Ward Batty. Um, two Game Fests and one Gamerama. And this happens on a yearly basis. It's our chance as a community to get together as gamers, throw all our games up on the wall, and uh, get to play games with one another. It's a very awesome experience. So we're going to talk to you a little bit about the convention experience, and then we're going to spend some time talking with Joseph about Mageling and his history with psychology. So I think the first thing I wanted to do was talk about our overall experience of the convention. You know, I, I think for you, this is your first Gamerama? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and uh, I know Brian's been with me at Gamerama several times. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, how was the how was the convention? What do you think? Well... Your average convention is always fun to meet new people. And, of course, you know, we met new people while we were there. We're talking to one of them right now. Right. Um, But that's – at your average convention, you're always going to meet somebody new. But at these local conventions, you know, I've I've had a rough week. I teach seventh graders. So it's – every week is kind of – ends up being a rough week in its own way. Um, And it was really refreshing to go to this place and have at least, you know – four or five people a day come up and say, oh, i got to get in a game with you. And you're like, you have to get in a game with me. Yes, I am somebody. People know me. I'm, I'm important. I'm I awesome. Matter. I matter. Even if they don't actually end up playing a game with you, which you know, schedules never work out quite right. that well, you right. know. Um, 
just the idea somebody made a point of walking over to you and saying, "Hey, you, I want to play a game with you this weekend." Mm-hmm. It, it gave me kind of a kind of a boost, you know. Yeah, it's, it's always a good experience. I remember when I first started going to Game Fest was my first convention ever that was a game convention, and I'd never experienced anything like this. You know, I'd, I'd done some well played stuff, which well played is a a local group that uh, gets together to play games, but not a convention. And so when I went to Game Fest and I saw just walls of games and everybody that I didn't know was so friendly and inviting me in, I knew I'd kind of, it felt like I'd come home basically. Um, And I think that's the nice thing about this convention in particular. It's a very family convention in the sense that everybody knows everybody for the most part. And there's some people that, that are new to the scene or new to our group, but it's just so welcoming and honest and open and, and there's very little negative that happens at our our game gatherings here in Atlanta like that. Um, your first year, so what did you think? What was it like? It was very uh, enjoyable experience. For one thing, it was much more focused on board games than even Gen Con, yeah. which has a lot of different branches. Um, I went to Gen Con the last two years and you know it's got video games, um, there were role-playing games here as well, but it's just a more uh, diverse set of activities where this was really focused on board games and very intimate. And in a way, it was my favorite part of a convention, which is to, you know, the room where there's a lot of games and everyone just sits around and plays games mm-hmm. together. So that was cool. Uh, the other thing that was really neat were talking to some of the gamers there about game mechanisms. I brought Mageling there to demo and a lot of people had ideas for me. A lot of people had games they wanted to show me. And that turned out to be really, really interesting. Got a lot of a lot of ideas from people and a lot of games that seemed to relate in a meaningful way to my own sort of um, design aesthetic. Yeah. So. Yeah, you particularly liked the game we played at the end there. Oh, absolutely loved it. And there was one other game that I found extremely fascinating, which was... Roll for the Galaxy. I don't know if you've okay. ever played that yeah. before, but that was a oh, yeah. very interesting game. Um, so what's your experience like in Roll for the Galaxy? What's it like to be a player? Well, one of the things it, that surprised me about it was how well it worked um, in in the sense of everyone doing turns simultaneously and not really worried about what the other person was during, doing mm-hmm. during that time. Mm-hmm. Like everybody has this... Uh, phase in the game where they roll and then they reveal which dice they've rolled and placed in a certain way and then they get to go through these actions so uh, it was just a very in a sense chaotic because everyone's just doing their own thing but I was amazed by how well it worked given that and um, how smooth the game was to play and how quick um, it was for such a deep game okay yeah, I, I like I like uh, rolling uh, rolling for roll for. The, I was gonna say I like rolling for change. Yeah, I like rolling for so. the galaxy quite a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't play it that much because it you have to really know the rules because you're right. It's simultaneous, so everybody's playing at the same time. We're all frantically rolling and trying to do this thing. If you make a mistake, nobody knows you made a mistake because it's so insular. Like you're sitting there behind your board doing your thing, right. and I don't think anybody means to to make a mistake in the game, but I think mistakes are made on a regular basis in the game, just just the fact they're rolling dice. So I, I think it it misses something from that, but at the same time, it works really well. If you got people who you really trust, it's just a fun way to spend some time. And it's fortunately a much easier game to learn than its sister game, Race for the Galaxy, oh, yeah. which right. I've played twice, and 
am happy to have gotten those two plays in and <laughs> will be happy to not play not that one game. again. Not my game. Roll okay. for the Galaxy is my game. I like that one. Well, the thing that you said, I think, is that was my first impression of the game mm-hmm. before I played it. And it was one of the reasons why I didn't think I would like it very much, which is the lack of enforceability. Yes. Right? Yes. So someone can be making a mistake. Also, someone could be just deliberately cheating. They could just set the dice to whatever they want. They're behind, uh, and I, you know, obviously we don't try to play with people who are going to cheat. Yeah, we try to, yeah. But it's generally a rule in game design, or at least board game design, that you try to make the rules enforceable. Yeah, some kind of you accountability know. for the player. Exactly. And so that if someone is doing something wrong, you can notice it, other players can notice it, or like I said, if they're cheating. So, but I, but it was interesting because they, I, I think that the designer, I suspect that the designer knows that knows yeah. that he's going into a territory that is not enforceable. And so he's making that sacrifice, basically. And so what we get is everything that you can do if you just forego enforceability. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it was really interesting. That because really most interesting. designers like won't do that. Most designers won't make a game that isn't enforceable because they know that's not a great thing to be non-enforceable. But because he was willing to sacrifice that enforceability, it opened up this whole dynamic uh, that wouldn't be available otherwise. Right, so basically you wouldn't have that in another game because of all the accountability right. kind of checks and balances that are put in place. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And, and I have a real interest in games with input randomness. Talk right? about that, what's input randomness? So this is something that um, mm-hmm. I got, a ter- it's a term I got from Keith Bergun, and he's uh, someone who speaks, he's got a YouTube channel and a podcast, but he talks a lot about um, trying to create a set of not rules to follow, but rules to understand for game design, sort of mm-hmm. in a similar vein of music theory, right? Okay. So, you know, you can learn music theory and it can help you figure out how to compose something, but it isn't something that you have to follow, right? So you can mm-hmm. know uh, the theory and, and then still be able to bend its rules and break its rules, right? So, but he talks about input randomness versus output randomness. So output randomness is what we see in most games with dice. It's where you have a challenge, you decide to do something, say it's an encounter, you, you want to go into this room and maybe you're facing a goblin, so you roll the dice and see if, if you won or not. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that it doesn't really inform whether that was a good choice or not, because you might win, you might lose based on the dice. But input randomness is where you get, the, the randomness is before the turn. Right, so you see this in um, Yahtzee style games. You see this in deck building games. You know, you draw a set of cards. What are you going to do? So th- that draw is the randomness, right. and then mm. the player gets to choose what they're going to do with it. So rather than making the choice first and then the randomness determining whether that choice was good, you get a set of choices that are randomly determined. So that input randomness, there's not that many ways to do it with dice, and so Mageling and you know um, other games, you know, King of Tokyo, they use this sort of Yahtzee style thing where you roll mm-hmm. dice and you get to keep some, throw some away, right. re-roll them. Exactly. And so that gets used a fair bit because it, it works really well. Mm-hmm. But roll for the galaxy does something totally different. You roll and then you get to kind of um, assign certain number of dice in a certain way that are basically wild. Mm-hmm. And so that mitigates the randomness. Mm-hmm. And but but it's it's that input randomness where you see what options you have and then you go from there. And so that, that really interests me, you know, because yeah. so many games have the output written. So I think that's, that tends to be people's de- default position, you know, in designing games. Right. I mean, a lot of times there's a, a very strong luck exactly. component to the games we played. In fact, I kind of run away from the luck games, except unless it's yeah. Las Vegas. 
But, yeah, they were talking about input and output randomness in one of the last couple episodes of um, the Dice Tower too. I think really, yeah, uh, maybe Jeff that, Engelson. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of where I where I first heard about it from was from that episode. Um, I'd heard the term before, but hadn't really gotten in depth with them until I until I listened to that episode. But um, yeah, I I I I treat any kind of game with that kind of randomness where you make a decision and then this is what's gonna and then you roll to see if you you do that mm -hmm. i leave those to role-playing games yeah right paper and pen role-playing games because that's kind of the point of it you you look before you you don't look before you leap quite as often right you're gonna say i want to do this action do i succeed and that it lends to the flavor of the game a little bit more right. with a board game the whole point is to be strategic so you want to be able to make your plans and have them come out and it's I'm going to draw these cards and what do I do with the hand in front of me? Rather than I want to do this thing, now I'm going to draw my cards and oh crap, I can't do what I'd planned on doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why that works in that direction. Um, like the one of the games we played at Gamerama, Clank, the one Clank, the one yeah. that, the one that the three of us played together. Um, in that instance, I was working what what I was calling a teleport deck. Mm -hmm. All my strength depended on I'm not going to waste my money to get a key. I'm going to use my teleports. And so I teleported into a room. And now the next few draws, my my successor failure depended on whether I could draw another teleport card before everyone else got the stuff that they wanted. Yeah. Or was I going to be trapped in this room until I made so much noise that the dragon ate me whole? I was so sure that that was going to be a, a terrible strategy. No, but I <laughs> and kept you my deck work I, so well. I kept my deck I kept my deck small enough that I was able to get teleports whenever I needed them. So that was the strength of that game. the The basis of this game, for those of you listening who are like, well, "All right, what is Clank? What is Clank? What the heck is Clank? All right, it's kind of a dungeon. It's a dungeon delve game, but it's also a deck builder." So you you have these cards that you can purchase um, that give you special abilities, just like any other deck builder, except instead of building your deck to be building your deck to get points, you're building your deck so that you can power your adventurer who's walking around this board in a dungeon. In the upper levels, if you die, the villagers will come in to save you if you have an artifact, something that they can say, well, oh, you, you have something powerful. We'll save you because you can probably defend us from the dragon. If you didn't get an artifact, well, yo, it sucks to be you. And if you're in the depths, they're not going to go anywhere near the dragon to save your sorry, but you're stuck. Yeah. But as you're going through, you're, 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 you're carrying around all this armor and you're trying to get gems and you're basically being noisy. So some of your cards have clank on them. And every time you get clank, you're going to take one of your cubes, drop it, it, drop it in. And whenever the dragon attacks, all these cubes go into a bag and you draw them out. And if your cube comes out, the dragon or one of its henchmen found you and you take damage. Yeah, it's a hit point, basically. It's a hit point. And it, basically, it's get in, get as much stuff as you can, and get out before the dragon finishes you off. The first person to get out causes a timer to start kicking off, which means the dragon's going to start really getting ticked because someone escaped with part of some of his loot and it's now barreling down on you and everybody else has to get the heck out of dodge um it's a fascinating game and i like how it takes the concept of a deck builder and gives you something to do with your deck 
it's it's a little it's a little bit it's it's a level up from um the legendary games legendary marvel legendary yeah because those give you something to do with your with with, with your cards which is surviving complete tasks but this has a spatial element where you're going through a dungeon and you have to use your cards not only to get through the dungeon but to buy more equipment to make it easier for you to get through the dungeon so you, or get more coins so you can buy better stuff so you can carry more artifacts and there's a lot going on in the game it's way more going on than your average deck builder so i thought that was fascinating so there's two things that i want to kind of run into here as we're talking about game rama and obviously we're talking about the games we played and that's sort of like okay so game rama allows us or game fest whichever it is or any game convention for that matter allows us to be in touch with a lot of different games and a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of, uh, you know, on the surface, and we talk about this on Roll, Rolling for Change quite a lot, on the surface there's sort of this, we're, we're moving things around a board, we're, we're doing things to gain resources and we're doing whatever we need to do to achieve game goals. But there's an emotional level to this process that we're experiencing. And we get it more, I think, at a, a game-a-rama, game-fest kind of, convention kind of situation because even though those are people that are usually family to us um, it's different than just getting together with a group of friends at your house and playing a game because there's a different emotional element and that emotional element comes through in your experience so I feel like I want to break this down into kind of a duality first is your emotional experience of just in the space between you and the game and that's what is it like to experience this game as, as the person that's playing the game the other experience is between you and the audience that's playing the game. So it's my experience between you and me as we play the game. What do you think I'm thinking? What do I think you're thinking? And are you thinking that I just made a bad move? Are you judging me? Am I judging you? That kind of thing. Every that time. gets in place. Oh, thanks. thanks. <laughs> um, so that brings me to talking about sort of my emotional experience of games at uh, the convention this week. And we'll start with Clank since that's something we've all talked about. The, the thing I will say about Clank, the first game I played, I played with a random group of people that I didn't know. I didn't know them, really. I've seen them a couple of times. Um, and it was a much different experience because I'm kind of on my P's and Q's. I'm not very open with them. I'm not very honest about my feelings about things. But I was feeling kind of annoyed with the fact that I was um, not doing well in the game. Uh, and it just, it, it was a weird feeling. The nice thing about Clank is it gives such a sense of, this is really happening. Something about the deck building and the clanking and the dragon attacking, all of this kind of lends itself to being a more full experience than, say, just pushing cubes around the board. Yeah. And I reckon, you know, there's kind of this self-reflection moment that happens in games for me where it's like, oh, you're experiencing a sense of anger. You're experiencing a sense of anxiety or upset or whatever it is. Um, So that's something that I kind of want people, listeners, gamers as a whole to pay attention to is the emotional states that we have during gameplay. And that's not always easy to do, but I know that when I do and I reflect back and I'm, I'm, if I'm good at reflecting back, then I can take that information and learn something about myself. It becomes a doorway to self-understanding, um, which is kind of what I want games to do in some sense. Uh, the other experience I had was, um, you, have you played Terramisca? No, I'm not. Okay. And I know Brian's paid Terramisca, but Terramisca is yeah. a very intense, in-depth, uh, area control game that requires a lot of strategy. And my experience of it last time I played it was, 
I think I got pretty angry about last time I played it because somebody made a move that just didn't jive with me or I felt like I didn't understand some rule perfectly. Even though it's my favorite game, I still forget rules all the time. And this time around, I had to do some more cutthroat things in order to make my strategy work, which is, as a person who is a very passive person, it's not easy for... Even in game world, it's not easy for me to do that cutthroat thing. Um, so... That experience is another one of those self-reflective moments. Like, oh my god, I just, I just purposely cut somebody off to make my own ends be met and their ends not be met. You know, I'm, I, it's a very competitive situation. Competition is not something that I like. Euros have very nicely given us a space to experience competition without competitiveness. Does that phrase make sense? I think so. Yeah. Multiplayer solitaire. Yeah, I mean that that can happen in games. Well, the the interaction is less aggressive, right? So you might be competing to move the, build the engine that moves the quickest, right. or you might be competing to get more of a certain resource and the other person get less of that resource, as opposed to say, you know, destroying your players, mm-hmm. um, you know, what they've built. So there's not a lot of that, right? There's not a lot of take that. In no, heroes. there's not. So it's not like a war game where where you will win only by annihilating your opponents in a euro you can win as your opponents do really well yeah i mean everyone can do really well and then you can you know you can win by a small margin right and Uh, they even have catch-up mechanics you know so like if you're playing any felt game or any uve rosenberg game or you know a lot of the big designers they they set things up so that if you make really bad decisions in the first few moves you still have a chance to catch up with the people who made really good decisions right so there's a sense of balance throughout the game that just doesn't exist, especially not for Terra Mystica. That one, everything turns on a dime. If you don't make a play at a certain time, you might have lost the game. Yeah, Power Grid's good for that because <laughs> the person in last place gets first player. The person in first place going last. Yeah. And it, it allows people who are in last place to get dibs on the better stuff next time if they have the opportunity to get it. So, yeah, I, I, I like those catch-up mechanics a great deal. Yeah. They're very helpful, and, and you know, mm-hmm. they also help you learn how to play the game in a way that is functional. So you know, you can you can go in, learn the game, and still possibly win because you can catch up somewhere in the middle of the game. Right. So you've learned your lesson. Okay, don't put my worker there. Put my worker here instead. You know, if it's a worker placement or something. Um. So, what's you guys' emotional experience at a game convention like, or even just playing games? What is do you have those self-reflective moments? Well, I, I really try to. Yeah. And yeah, well, part of it is because I'm, uh, I have to admit, I'm always thinking about game design. Okay. So that's just, that's just sort that's of. just a natural part of your daily life. It's just life. part of, yes, it's just part mm-hmm. of my normal thought patterns. And so when I'm playing a game like Clank or something like that, I'm thinking about its design and I'm trying to notice how people are feeling around the table mm-hmm. and how I'm responding to it. And then later I'll reflect on why did I feel that way? Or why was I, you know, like I was having a lot of fun and really kind of feeling uh, a certain playfulness in that game that I don't always feel. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I felt like we all kind of were. There was a playfulness around the table. And I, I haven't played any other games with you guys, but I just got this feeling like we're just romping around this crazy dungeon and we're all just kind of having a good time. Yeah. And even though I was excited to push ahead a little bit at the end there, I I think I would have been quite happy to lose as well mm-hmm. because the, of that sense of just um, 
exploring mm-hmm. and exploring the mechanisms of the game and kind of I think there was a sense of discovery as well as mm-hmm. this was your second time playing I think that was your that first that was my first I've yeah. never yeah, even seen and, the and game for me before. I was just discovering it as I went and I had no idea what I was in for but it was for me it was really fascinating game and um, so yeah there was that uh, I got this really playful feeling and I from the whole table and I was reflecting on it afterwards why I felt that way okay. and, and I, I I think that part of it has to do just from a design perspective of the way that this designer has and I don't even know who made the game but but the way that they have um, they have taken the board and they've made the all the cards that that make up your deck pretty much interact with different aspects of the board mm-hmm. so you have these two colliding elements which is where you are on the board and what are the contours of that place. So there's that adventure feeling. You're always in a different place on the board. You're always moving through the board. And then on top of that, you've got these cards that are, each one of them interacting with different aspects of the board. So some of them are swords that let you get through a different little um, place, passage filled with monsters. You have these feet, which let you move or teleporters. And then there's certain cards that you have to find tokens to unlock. And so, you know, there's certain ones where you have to find a crown to unlock, or you have mm-hmm. to find the monkey, what was it, the monkey... Uh, the, 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 uh, it's like a gold see, monkey or something? Yeah, yeah something see, like that, see, right? See, yeah. see no so, evil, hear no evil, speak no yes. evil. And so, monkey right. heads. Exactly, monkey heads. And so you're, you're having this experience of... Idol. Monkey idol. Yeah, monkey, monkey idol, idol, right. So <laughs> you're, you're having this dual experience of, 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 on one hand, you're exploring these places for the first time, and there's certain tokens that are revealed... In, they introduce an element of surprise. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, you have the surprise of seeing what cards you draw and how they interact with where you are. And so there's this sort of dual level of, um, I don't know what that is. I guess it's dynamics, but it, it, mm-hmm. it made it very playful because mm-hmm. every turn you could just see what you could, what new things you could pull off in your part of the dungeon. And that would always be changing as your deck yeah, it didn't have the seriousness of a lot of other games. You could feel the kind of lightness to it. Yeah. But there was still competition. And it was the game itself, I think, engendered itself to be a friendly competition. I don't know. Yeah. I could be wrong. There could be people who play this really cutthroat and nasty and like I hate you for doing that to me kind of thing. Right. But I did I didn't feel it and I didn't I don't think I felt it either game really that I played. Yeah, and I I, th- I think that there's something um about games as, as far as um you know one of the positive things that i think the games do is allow us to pretend to be or to sort of act out our best selves in a sense mm-hmm. and so there's there's that element as well where you're um you know you're kind of able to uh behave in this space in a way that is really fearless and really creative and and mm-hmm. do all kinds of things that um you know you would love to be able to do so it's sort of it, it has that that quality of um of of sort of simulating what it's like to be this hero in a dungeon and i think that's but something that's to recall something that you went back to earlier while on the surface you're in a dungeon together and it mm-hmm. looks like you're in direct competition you're not there is literally nothing that I could do to harm you. There was no attacking each other. All I could do was take things that you wanted. Well, yeah, but... Which I did. I know. 
<laughs> hey, I got the 20. I was very happy. Um, I think there are some take that's in there, but I, I don't want to get too but, deep. But they're into not the game. as they're not as overt as as no. like cutthroat caverns or something no. like that, where you're literally playing a card and saying, "You take three, take three hit points." Yeah. You fail your action. Yeah. It it's less take that and more. I'm taking this so you can't. So, what's your emotional experience of games? Like, can you can you recall anything this weekend at the con? That yeah caught you either it could be joy it could be anger it could be sadness it could be frustration just what did games do to you basically there's always the danger when you meet someone new and you don't know anything about them that your 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 tastes are not going to mesh yeah so we have this guy who i've met and i've played games with he says oh i have this friend over here who has a game he wants us he wants to play he's a third player can you come play with us and like an idiot i didn't say what game mm. i trusted this guy i said all right let's go sit down and play and it was this game called pax renaissance i don't know if you've played it i saw that you rated it very low no i yeah, haven't played. no it, i i i can see how there's a game there that other people will enjoy i'm not the audience for that game mm. uh, what it, was it, it about the game uh, there were there were so many convoluted rules it's a small game. It's mostly just little cubes and some cards, and you put the cubes between the cards, and you have pawns and rooks and stuff that you move between the things. And it's all about taking over areas of the Mediterranean and North Africa, North Africa and South um, Europe, and yeah. up into England. But it's all about taking power back and forth through the play of these cards. But it's so needlessly complicated. This little short game that literally only took us maybe 45 minutes okay took 45 minutes to teach and it has a book about as thick as my thumb okay that he had to go through the book and he had to explain and this and this and this but if you do this then this and if, but if you do that then that and there so was is it the complexity so, that, that threw it you was it was really complex for a game that 30 45 minutes into it one of the one of the guys says um i do this dip, dip, and i i win mm -hmm. game's over us there was a part of me that was like, all that explanation for this? Okay. And on top of that, I didn't really enjoy the gameplay in general. Okay. But every minute of that game seemed like it was a year out of my life. It was just so long. I, I, I started, after the game was over, I thought, okay, I get to retire now, right? I get to claim my retirement, go on Social Security, go on... Medicare. I'm, I'm I'm retiring now. Right? I'm like 65. Nope, nope. Still 45. Oh God. Okay. I just got to so live out the rest the of my life. Reflection piece. If you come back to it, like yeah. So coming back to it, one of the one of the things I found is the more complicated a game is, and this is coming from someone who really likes you know Twilight Imperium, right. who likes complicated Euros, a a game that's simplistic looking yet needlessly compli complicated just frustrates me to no end the the longer rules explanation takes and it could have been the guy teaching the game he may have just taught too many rules up front and tried to teach us every nuance of the game yeah. but the longer the explanation went the less i was understanding about the game and you know it, it it was a reinforcement to me that you should learn how to teach games in stages I taught, out of the 11 games I played, I taught one, two, three, four, four of them. Okay. And 
I taught every single game in 15 to 20 minutes tops. I taught Mystic Veil. Um, I taught Potion Explosion. I taught Glass Road. And I taught Vikings. Okay. And with the exception of one person who, who, who Vikings didn't work out so well for because I, I, I took some things that they wanted. Um, everybody seemed to enjoy the game. Okay. And I, I think the, the non-enjoyment of Vikings was more, I can't feed any of my people because you took all the food. I'm so sorry, but I need to feed my people and um, mine. <laughs> right, right. That's that cutthroat moment where you're like, "Okay, it's me or you," and I'm sorry, it's me. My people get <laughs> if my people don't get fish, they die. So your people have to starve. I'm I'm terribly sorry, yeah. but I, I I need the fish. That was the mermaids in Terra Mystica because I was like, "I'm sorry, I know that mm-hmm. your people deserve this land, but the mermaids deserve <laughs> to thrive, and we are going to spread out as much as we can and own this land, and you can live with us peacefully over here and over here, but this is ours." <laughs> and one other little lesson I took away from it is there are some games and I, I, I typically watch out for them games where if someone has played the game enough, they will destroy anyone who's only played it a few times. Yeah. I played um, Terraforming Mars, which is very much another one of those, you know, it's very complex. It, it's a very complex game, but there are lots and lots and lots of cards in it. It's the same reason why I don't enjoy playing um, living card games or collectible card games is because if you find someone who knows every card in the deck, they're, they're going to kill you. And there are people who get that obsessive with these kind of games that there's just no way you can win. And Terraforming Mars, there were three of us who were new, two people who have played the game kind of a disgusting number of times. And they, they trashed us. Because they wanted to play with the drafting rules, which meant that they got all the best cards because we didn't know what their strategy was. We didn't know what their strategy even looked like. So yeah. we ended up being idiots and passing them cards that helped them just basically play against each other. And we were just facilitating their, their two-player game. <laughs> so part of this self-reflection thing that I, I've been trying to put a handle on for myself in my life is that you bring it back to cognitive psychology, which is basically one of the things that we try to teach the people that are going through a cognitive psychology session, course, whatever you want to call it, is that the things outside of us are not setting our emotional life. Mm -hmm. It is our internal decisions and our internal interpretations of the things outside of us. So that was why, you know, that was why with this, my my origin story is, is, I, I think I've said it on here before, but my origin story is I played a game of Trajan, which is a Stefan Feld game multiple paths to victory, really complex, and this was my first, you know, you could say Settlers of Catan was my first real Euro, but this was my first real deep Euro. And people around me were having such a great time, they were having a wonderful time, and I was in total misery. And I walked away wondering if it was the game or if it was me, and I had this kind of moment of, ah, kind of thing that um, I realized that, oh, it's me. It's me and the way I, I present myself to the game, and it's my failure to recognize it's bringing out all this emotion because I don't I don't know what I'm doing. So it, it's pointing out my own weaknesses, basically. Um, and that was that was really the birth of Rolling for Change because I realized, okay, there's a, there's a psychological life within games. Um, so thinking about it that way, is there anything that you recognize about yourself? Yeah. That 
Yeah, basically, I don't like to feel like I'm an idiot. There you go. And in those two games, one, the rules explanation halfway through, I had no idea what the guy was talking about. Now I have to play a game where I literally know nothing about what I'm doing except yeah. maybe the, the barest essentials. And, of course, the guy who's teaching the game knows the game in and out. One other person got it faster than I did, but he's his friend, so he's heard the spiel already. Right. And I felt like, I felt like a rank idiot for not being able to get the game in terraforming mars there are two people who know the game inside and out and kept making a point of pointing out to us halfway through the game once there was no way to stop them that it was our stupid decisions that were allowing them to win this game i was like well thanks guys you could have gone the entire game and not pointed that out and i would have enjoyed it a lot more i don't mind losing games you've played games against me i lose all the time right i don't mind losing as long as you don't make me feel like an idiot about it but aren't you know? I'm, I'm going to put this back on you. Aren't you the one making yourself feel like an idiot? In a sense. All right. In Pax Renaissance, mm-hmm. yes, I made myself feel like an idiot. In the terraforming Mars game, the other two guys were making a point of pointing out if you hadn't made this boneheaded move and like using that kind of language, if you hadn't made this kind of boneheaded move, we wouldn't be winning this game right now. That that was that was external. That's the kind of external stuff that you don't need. I mean, you can always walk away from that and not take it personally, but it can it can still make the game frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I I had no ill will toward them. I like playing games with these guys for the most part, as long as it's not a game like this. But it was it's hard when people come back and start like my father did, tell me that I'm an idiot. Don't tell yeah. me I'm an idiot. Thank you for pointing out that, that that I made a poor move. Don't tell me it was a boneheaded move. Just you know, later on, say I was following this strategy, and you right. passed me some cards that allowed me to do that. So you're a game designer, Joseph, and how do you feel about this? Like, what do you do when you design? First off, is majoring your first game? Well, it's the first game I've tried to publish. Okay. You've made games before this. Yeah, yeah. So I've made a lot of games, and I still make a lot of games just, you know. I try to make very small games that uh, can be quickly prototyped. Mm -hmm. And that's part of how I got into Mageling, was just making a lot of really small games. Okay. And trying a lot of different things and seeing if something grabs my attention and holds it. And so, yeah, so like these kinds of experiences that you're talking about where you're kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting to think about it from your perspective because a lot of times I think about it from a game design perspective. I'm thinking, okay, there's something wrong about this game that's making me feel this way. But you can also look at it from the perspective of um, uh, personal responsibility of my Mm -hmm. own emotions and say, Mm -hmm. you know, there's probably a narrative that's going on in your head that's making this so miserable. Like I kind of had a similar experience that you had with this, um, you know, a game that where the rules explanation took so long and then the actual game itself took so long and it was so dull in a, in yeah. a sense. I mean, there were good yeah. things. There were, there were great things about it, but the time between turns and then the rule, the, it was a, like a three hour experience. And the narrative going on in my head was that there was something else I could be doing that was better. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. we could have just shortened like we, this experience. We, yeah, we, this. we could have done this in an hour and then we could have just all gotten on and here we are at this great convention. There's so many people to meet. There's so many games to play. We could all, you know, and I didn't know going into it that it was going to be a three hour experience. So I thought I was just sitting down to some simple little game and yeah. we're going to have a little bit of fun and move on. And then three hours later, it's coming to a close and I'm, you know, I'm just frustrated right. in my mind, you right. know, I'm, you know, and I'm, but 
it's so true. I do have a narrative going on, and if I would let that narrative go, I would probably enjoy myself a lot more. You know, How does that play into your game design, or does it? I mean, well, that's I, what I mean. Is I think you know, there's two levels of it. On one, there's the personal responsibility. Like in any situation you're in, that you you know you're not. There's not a way out, right? right. Without there wasn't a way out for me without doing something I didn't want to do, which was ruin the game for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So there's I just want a social contract. There. Right. There's a social yeah. exactly. There's a social contract. I did not want to break it, and I I felt like this was something I you know I I'd, I'd agreed to whether I understood it or not how long it was going to be. I'd agreed to it. So, because I've agreed to it, I probably should try and make it as enjoyable as I can for myself. And I don't think I did a great job. <laughs> but it's possible that that can exist on one hand. And on the other hand, if the game design was a little better, yeah. I wouldn't be having that struggle. Like, I didn't have to think about that during Clank, for instance. How am I going to endure this situation? Right. Or Roll for the Galaxy. You know, and these are quick-moving games that I think that the game designer has... Uh, built baked into it empathy for the players you know it's it's trying to ensure that someone isn't going to be waiting forever between their turns or they're not going to have 45 minute rule explanation Mm -hmm. so yeah so i think i i tend to my my first thoughts though are about empathy from the perspective of a game designer like how can i be empathetic towards your experience and when and how can you generate it among the players as opposed to generating Hatred, enmity, whatever. Exactly, it might be. and that's actually something that I got from Richard Garfield, you mm-hmm. know, the designer of Magic and King of Tokyo, and actually a lot of his design techniques are things that I just have adopted, and they have been uh, the reason that I've been, you know, my attempts at game design have gotten more successful over time and not less. Because I, I attribute them to him because he's got so many good ideas. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing this for so long. Oh, yeah. So, and one of them is that this idea that you're empathetic to anyone who comes to the table. So a lot of games are designed with a certain kind of gamer in mind. Like this is a game for, you know, a heavy gamer, or this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, for a light gamer, or this is for a strategy gamer. And and I try to make um, I try to make my games for every single person. I mean, obviously there's some limitations, right? Yeah. But 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 as broad of a range as possible. So if someone sits down and I teach them the rules of my game and they're just totally confused and they're feeling like an idiot and I or or just feeling um, even if they don't feel like an idiot, just being confused is not a good thing for game design generally. No, unless that's the the point of the game is to confuse. Yeah, you. but that's rarely going to be the point. Right, right. And actually, um, Quentin Tarantino said something interesting uh, about immersion that I really took to heart, which is mm-hmm. that confusion breaks immersion. So even though yeah. you can be strange and weird and do interesting things, if you're confusing about what's going on, it's difficult to also be immersive, right? Yeah. So if you want a game to really captivate the person, they should probably not be feeling confused. And so, so that idea of empathy that is um, extending to everyone or as many people as possible means that you're going to try to make it not confusing to someone who might struggle to learn rules, but also not so random that a strategy gamer is not going to have anything to sink their teeth into. So there should be some depth, but also um, some elegance. And actually, I think, again, this guy, Keith Bergan, um, who you guys can check out online, but he, he says something very interesting about his definition of elegance uh, in game design, which is about the relationship between how many rules to create how many depth how much depth mm-hmm. right so an elegant game has as few rules as possible to create as much depth as possible 
So you can have more rules and then a lot more depth, or you can have fewer rules and a lot have, more depth. and have depth. Yeah. Well, right. So you can have more. It's okay to have add more rules as long as those rules also add more depth and that that depth is meaningful to the game. So you can have so much depth that that you have more depth than you need, right? Like because our brains can only comprehend so much, so you can have so much depth that you don't, you know, it's not useful, and that's the way I feel about uh, some some of the heavier Euro games. Like, you know, it's it's definitely true that it's not solvable, right? Mm -hmm. It's not easily solvable. You're not gonna just know what to do for sure because there's so many different moving pieces. Right. But there, but you know, a few fewer moving pieces, and you still wouldn't know what to do. Right. So, you know, in those cases, sometimes it's more depth than what I think probably it needs. I'm mm -hmm. glad those games exist, mm -hmm. but it's just not the area I would, you know, yeah, choose so it's to not explore. Your focus point. It's you're, not you're my focus to, point. Right. You're trying to get depth with, with as few rules as possible. And, and right. that's um, so before we get into talking about Mageling, did you No, I was just going to say uh, Example of that, David Skoog, who was on our yeah. show a few episodes ago, um, invited me to a game of Food Chain Magnate. Invited some people near me to Food Chain okay. Magnate. Turned to me and said, and I know you don't want to play. And I put my hands up <laughs> and backed away slowly. Because it's, it's a good game. I see the game there, but there are just too many convoluted rules and too much depth to the game. And it, it crosses my threshold. Yeah, it is not enjoyable to do. me. It's not enjoyable for me. I just I don't like that game. Um, I do recognize that it's a good game. I under totally understand why people like it, just not for me. Yeah. So before we get um, into talking about Mageling, can you maybe talk about how you came to be a game designer and um, what experiences brought you to this point in your life? All right. Well, I think that probably the beginning of my interest in game design came from my childhood, which um, I played games with my brothers. And um, it's cool because my brothers are now a big part of my current project. But we, we all grew up playing a lot of games together. And Charles and I, who were three years apart, mm -hmm. we played a lot of role-playing games. And I was a lot of times wanting to be the dungeon master and he liked to play as you know the, the hero or the mm -hmm. player and I did a lot of game mastering and I started to get interested in game design and I really wanted to publish my own role-playing game you know we also played board games but there weren't board games hadn't evolved at that point you know yeah. it was the 80s I played um, I guess uh, what is it Blood Bowl Mm -hmm. If you ever played yes. that that was a great game um, and you know a handful of, of, of interesting games but really um, I love my passion was in role-playing games and then when I got to about 18 or so I just really lost interest and there was this idea that was floating around at the time the games were really a waste of time it was sort of like an illusion mm -hmm. right that you would the game would create this illusion that you were doing something really successful something really awesome but you actually weren't you were actually just sitting in your house doing nothing yeah right and so there was this that that idea floating around and I kind of bought into that and so I um, did a lot of other things and I was happy to do a lot of other things I mean I really uh, had some great adventures and um, you know I kind of rebelled against my my game design time mm -hmm. and I, I, I really tried to go and, and travel and do things that were very tangible and um, 
anyway, I ended up working in a place um, called Pacific Quest that was in that is in Hawaii, and it's a wilderness therapy program. And I spent three years there. And in my last year, I was in this position as um, director of sustainability. And so my job was to set up basically therapeutic challenges using the land. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that people had to manage, people who were there, the campers and everything, had to manage the land. And the better they did at managing the land, the more uh, they would get you know, privileges, things like that. So they would, they would get more access to better foods or they could go and um, pick trips to the island so they could go swimming and snorkeling and do stuff like that. But they had to sort of earn it using what was around them. Mm. And they wouldn't be given a set of rules at the start. They'd have to kind of figure it out. And my job was to set up those systems that w people could plug into. And so there was a way in which it was very much like game design. You know, where you've got the person who's in charge of the seeds and they've got certain parameters to create their, um, you know, seedlings. Mm -hmm. And then there's a person in charge of compost and a person in charge of mapping out the gardens. And so um, that was a really kind of an interesting, um, interesting in the sense that it got me interested in this idea of uh, setting up, setting up sets of rules that could have emergent properties. So if you mm -hmm. set up certain rules and um, people plug in, plug in the human brain into them, you get interesting results, right? And, and it, things are fun, yeah. right? Instead of things being really boring. You, you, certain sets of rules will um, make more interesting things happen than other sets of rules, right? So um, after that, I, got, I started getting my degree in uh, music therapy and I, there was also a music component in the program I'd been in, so I wanted to explore that more. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I started reading a few articles about games and, um, and therapy. And I started to think, this might be a really cool avenue to explore. And I began to realize how what I'd been doing before actually did, um, to some extent, qualify as a game, right? Because there were, there were definitely, there wasn't necessarily a win-lose condition, but there was winning and losing, right? You could mm -hmm. be doing better or you could be doing worse. Like you could be having more fun on the island. You'd be going on more trips. You could be eating more mangoes or, you know. That's your winning condition. Right, that's your winning yeah. condition, right. Or you could be doing less, right? Which mm -hmm. is, you know, you're, you're, you're on the island, but you're not really having as much fun as you could be having. You're not immersed. You're not immersed, right. And you're not having really emergent experiences. So it... Um, so I really realized that a lot of what I had already been doing was uh, game design on some mm. on some level, and uh, so I they didn't have a game design program within the college I was going to, so I did a independent study, and um, and I had moved out to Athens, and I met a guy named Kevin Kennedy, who um, through a local game group, who basically became a mentor for an independent study I did. And I, um, I used the curriculum for MIT's uh, open source game design program. And basically the cool thing there was that I got to, you know, as part of the curriculum, play a lot of the really important games. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the games that brought certain specific mechanisms to the table uh, you had to play and then also listen to a lot of lectures that, that really covered the fundamentals of game design. So that was a really cool course and Kevin's 
himself a game designer and he was a great teacher he's a mathematician mm-hmm. and so that was all kind of part of that evolution and also um just being exposed to a few games i remember dominion like many people had a huge impact on me i just remember the experience of uh just waking up in the morning still thinking about it just pondering yeah. the strategy why were certain strategies working so well it was just this mystery and there were a few other games like that, Pandemic being one of them, um, and uh, games that got me really thinking. And I, I just started uh, working on games. I just started, it just sort of happened, and I, I just um, kind of caught the bug. And uh, so, so yeah, that got me kind of going with it. And um, But it took me a long time to sort of find myself in it, right, because it's a tricky thing to... To do well, right? You make a game, yeah. you want it to be good, mm-hmm. and that's part of the problem. Actually, is that you know you make a game and you're you invest your time and your energy and it takes so much work to do. The last thing you want is it to be bad, and yet the only way to make it good is to acknowledge the things that are wrong with it. And so that's the tricky part I, I, I found. And um, and uh, another thing that um, Richard Garfield talked about that really had an impact on me was this idea of game design that the the game you're designing is like an ecosystem and that you are sort of pulling the parts out that aren't working and and the parts that are working are sort of multiplying in a sense Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's exactly how he puts it but but it's um but finding that flow was the thing that um let me get to the point where Mageling is right now, where you know you have a game that is actually showing the signs of refinement, you know, and not just a bunch of ideas, um, but but really something that's evolving through its interaction with with people. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm actually I also worked at a wilderness program, so that's a, that's a fascinating crossover there, but. Uh, I never thought about the fact that the person who's putting together all of the sort of activities that these kids are doing was actually game designing. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, so it sounds like you were saying that the playtesting was pretty demoralizing. There was a sense of, uh, like, you're trying to make this thing the best you can, but you have to, of course, look at the critical side of it in order to... Right. And actually, um, you know, another Richard Garfield quote, just because... I mean, I just be honest, like Richard Garfield's ideas have taught me how to, they've informed my process. Okay. And so I'll just share this other one because I think it relates to what you're saying, which is he, he talks about there being two basic types of game design. Um, one are painters, right? Mm-hmm. People who can paint very carefully and, and paint a game and they get right into the details and they, they just, it's like Bob Ross or something, right? Just, yeah. just, just making something Happy little meeple exactly you know just making something uh, sort of where each component of the game is very intentional and serves a very specific purpose and it all kinds of comes together like that and i think martin wallace might be someone a little mm-hmm. bit like that who mm-hmm. conceptualizes the game in his mind over a couple weeks or so and then puts it on pa- puts it on paper and then prototypes it and it works right and then of course there's some refinement and everything like that but it's not um, but it, but everything's sort of functions right from the beginning. The second type of game design approach that Richard Gar- Garfield talks about is the sculptor. 
this is someone who puts so many ideas onto the table, just just a huge amount of ideas, and then chisels away mm-hmm. until they find the game. And that really is me. Okay. Right. So, but but you can imagine that process of chiseling is is a little bit painful because each part that you're cutting away is something that you are invested in, and you've these are ideas that you've had and thought would be great. It's hours of time that you've spent. Um, and so to get comfortable with that process of just chiseling and just um, sort of like the cutting room floor, just being filled with with ideas that are now not part of your game anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and even for me, uh, one of the most, uh, you know, one of the aspects of maging that I, I am surprised that is there and I really avoided was the Yahtzee aspect. Now, I think it works wonderfully for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, I had there were a lot of ideas that came before it that were maybe more original to myself, but um, it kind of came full circle. And when that mechanism turned out to just in that ecosystem rise to the top, where that was the best way to give players the most control of the dice for this particular system and the right amount of randomness, the right amount of control. So, but but to accept that meant letting go of things that I had spent a lot of time and, you know, felt some attachment to. Mm-hmm. So it's that constant sense of um, jettisoning, jettisoning things that you've uh, that are precious to you, right? Like your ideas, your little babies. And you yeah, and let them it's go. Very similar for a writer, you know, yeah, and putting the, all this on page and yeah, in the in the writing world, they call it kill your darlings. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that that is one thing that, you know, I, I heard um, one of the uh, developers for um, AEG talking about this, John Goodenough. He talks about that as when he's looking, when he's evaluating prototypes, that's one of the things that he sees most in amateur designers. They're trying is, to hold on to these aspects yes. of the game that are so dear to them. Yes, exactly. But don't do anything for the game. Right, right. And if they were a little bit, if they had grown a little bit in, in their design process, they, they would get that ability or that emotional, um, I don't know what it is, if it's emotional strength or it's just... Mm-hmm. Um, to let go of some idea, maybe, you know, because yeah. you're gonna you're gonna lose these pieces, but you're you're still gonna carry forward with a more streamlined idea. Yeah, and actually, just I just read an article by Justin Gary, who's a great writer. He's he's you know he writes articles, um, and he's the designer of Ascension. Oh, okay. And he talks about this, and he says something that is very insightful, and it's been very true for me. Which is one nice thing you can look at it. One nice way to look at it is that you can save these ideas for expansions. Like these ideas may be <laughs> yeah, great. Exactly. And there may be a great point in time where once the core mechanism is developed and people are playing the game and it's there's some level of refinement there where adding back in a system um, becomes really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know? But you know finding that core game and, and refining that core game really is um, it just requires uh, in most cases, if you're a sculptor, if you're a painter, maybe not, you know, in a lot of cases, it isn't that, that way, you know, certain people uh, don't need to cut so much. But but for Richard Garfield, he does. And for me, it's just insane how much I've cut. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, letting a lot of letting go. Very okay. few things, um, very few things making it to the final, the final game. And so well, you picked yourself up and yeah. tried to go forward after letting go of some of these darlings. And right. that, that's where Magelands comes from. You're you're pretty much in the finished stages now. You're yeah. 
you've kickstarted it basically. Right. And it's available. It's out there. It's ready and. Like probably by the time this airs, seven or six days, maybe even five. Yeah, yeah, we're getting close <laughs> to seven days, which is you know, um, we're yeah. So it's it's um, it's available on Kickstarter, and uh, it is it's a finished game. There's maybe a tiny bit of room to where we you know we could tweak a card here or there, but mm -hmm. but the the core of the game is there, and um, you know it's it's been a long you know a long process. I mean, it's been about if you include all the iterations that led to the core mechanism itself, it's been about four years in the making. Okay. So you can imagine, you know, it's when you have it riding on a Kickstarter, it's a little tense, mm -hmm. but, um, but again, you know, you just have to accept where things are and I, we, we've done well so far. We're, we're close to 90%. So, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So hopefully some listeners will go and take a look, but maybe you can give us, you know, obviously we don't have a visual in front of us, but maybe you can give us kind of a an elevator spiel. So yes, uh, about absolutely, uh, so absolutely. the listeners will know what we're talking about. Yes, it's um, well, I call the core mechanism dice activation, uh, and basically the idea is that uh, I I take a lot of inspiration from deck building games and and look at the what deck building games offer in the sense of their again back to input randomness, like getting getting having options. And having really one of my favorite things about them is this idea of creating synergies, right? Like cards that synergize with each other. And mm -hmm. um, the way that you can build in a deck building game, you know, you can build a different deck each time that has its own unique character. And you can't, you know, it'll never be the same, right? Every one is different. And in Mageling, it's, uh, it's not a deck building game, but it's inspired by them. It's, and so in Mageling, you build up a tableau of cards which are activated by dice. And so those dice at the start of the game kind of act like almost a deck building game your starting cards would act. So giving you bits of energy to build your engine with. And then as you get cards, they are activated by a certain face of the die. Mm -hmm. So they're called runes on the dice. And so you place a die onto a card to activate, activate its ability. But the interesting thing is that because of that bit of randomness that the dice give you, and you one re-roll, you roll the dice and re-roll, um, it means that unlike a lot of tableau building games where you have this sort of repetitive thing happening, all the cards trigger every turn, um, in Mageling, you know, you get different combinations of your tableau activating based on what you've rolled. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those cards will um, manipulate the dice and activate other cards. And so there's a lot of chaining, a lot of combos, a lot of synergies. And... Um, yeah, and it's it's also an adventure game. So it's um, and so you are building up these combos, building up this energy to uh, defeat locations. And the first person in the competitive mode, the first person to defeat all five locations wins the game. Um, and then there's a cooperative mode where you have a, sort of a timer going mm -hmm. to defeat um, different locations. Okay, so quick question: How the, the the core mechanic sounds fairly similar to Machi Koro. Uh, how, how is it different from that? Yeah, well, in Machi Karo, you have one die and you roll it. Uh, you roll the die on your turn, and everybody at the table who has that number would it's trigger the their cards, right. right? And Mageling, what you have are five dice that are rune dice, um, and basically each card you trigger has to be triggered by a die. Right. So you have different combinations. So it's it's um, 
it, it plays very different to Machi Koro uh, in the sense that you are, uh, so say you had built up cards, you know, there's one of the symbols that kind of looks like a moon, it's called divination, mm -hmm. right? And say you had three divination cards, um, you would be trying to figure out how to activate those cards um, with as few dice as possible, right? right? So you might, have, um, you might have to use three dice set to divination. Now you might have um, a chain going on where you can, you know, maybe a divination card is a spell. And so you can uh, activate another card from another school of magic with a different rune that would then trigger that spell. And maybe that spell would set a die to divination and then trigger your next divination card. So there's a lot of, there's a very different feel to mm -hmm. it in the sense of, um, you know, the, the mechanism is each card requiring a die to activate. Um, so that's really the only similarity is you roll dice and those dice activate your cards, but only your cards. Right. Which basically is you're, you're, you're taking Machikoro and making... I'm sorry for all you Machikoro fans out there, a good game out of it, out of that one core mechanic. Right. Well, it, yeah, there's, there's the similar, I can see the similarity where, um, like I said, just that one thing yeah, sounds very similar, but the rest yeah. of it sounds very different, which can only make it better. Yeah. Well, I, I do. I think it's, I think it might be one of those things where playing it, the differences become, you know, more, apparent. right. Like for instance, um, in Machikoro, your die uh, it automatically triggers everything. Where in Mageling, you might want to do something else with that die. So there's a right. lot of choices, like, you know, you might want to trigger this card, or you might want to trigger that card, or you might want to trigger neither card, right? You might want to re-roll it. And you have this thing called a spirit crystal, which lets you focus dice. And mm -hmm. focus dice give you energy, but they also let you trigger what are called spirits, which are in the nexus. So, um, So there's you know, the dice are a little bit more on the input randomness side of the spectrum. Right. Where Machikoro, you roll a die and see what happens. Hope, hopefully... Hoping the good that, things are going right, to come up. Hoping that the things that you have will get... The best thing that you had yeah. gets triggered. So in other words, there's there's a good and bad way for that die to roll. In Mageling, you roll a bunch of, you know, five dice, and it's not clear immediately what is good mm -hmm. and bad. Sometimes it's more clear, say, if you've built um, your grimoire, is what it's called, your tableau of all the same school of magic, then you want to hit that school. But generally speaking, you've got sort of some diversity where you're like, okay, well, that's an interesting right. combination. Maybe I'll keep these two. And so it's, it's I, I think the input randomness makes it a little bit different, but I, I've heard other people say yeah. the similarity. Which was kind of where I was trying to lead you to. I love when a plan comes together. I was trying to lead you back to that input output randomness right, without right. me having to bring it up. But <laughs> now you have again. Yeah. You've revealed again, your magic. But I've revealed my magic. But here, here's the thing I wanted to get to, and right. when I was trying to, when I was trying because I have never seen your game yet. Yeah. Because yeah. Woody was the one who was really going yes. over that while I yeah. was packing stuff up. I didn't have time to do that because I have a long drive. Um, but I was really interested to hear about it. Um, was it's something we've come to so many times Ooh, Sorry, on this podcast is most board games become better the more agency you give players. Right. Yeah. The more decision-making you put in the player's hands. Machikoro, the big thing was, I'm going to decide to get this card. And that's the extent of your decision. Everything else is up to a roll of the die. With your game, you're, you're getting cards and you're rolling dice, and then you have all that agency of deciding... What is the best method to utilize these dice to do things? Kind of like in um, 
in um, Alien Frontiers, okay. where you roll dice and you assign them to yeah. actions. Right. Yeah. Or in Kingsburg, where you roll dice and you assign Both are them. kind of dice worker placement games, and this has uh, maybe a little bit of a feel of right. that. It's right. it's kind of, it's a little bit more toward those kind of games. It sounds like where yeah. you have agency, you're deciding, and if you you could use this die over here to do this, to do that, to do the other, or if I put the die over here, I could activate this that allows this to happen and that to happen. Whereas in Machi Koro, you're just rolling and praying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the more you take yeah. randomness out of a game and give the control to the player, I think that makes the game much better. You know, the game that I was thinking matched a little bit with what you're talking about is Ashes. Because in Ashes, you are rolling dice and activating cards in order to do certain things in battle on the board. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would like to play yeah. that. I've, I've, uh, I noticed that they have kind of a rune-looking kind mm-hmm. of dice. Yeah, I think yeah. that would be interesting to mm-hmm. to try. I, th- I do think Machi Koro, on the plus side of it, it is a lighter game than Mageling. Mageling's a little bit heavier. Um, and But one criticism I do have with it, as far as the simultaneousness goes, is that even though there's this simultaneous quality in Machi Koro, the other people at the table don't really have any agency. Right. They have to just remember to collect their resource if this random yeah. thing happens. It's, it's so similar it's, to make sure that you, when you're playing Monopoly, make sure if somebody lands on your place, right. you say, give me my money. Exactly. And so right. that and that's why I was really so impressed with Roll for the Galaxy. Because it's got a simultaneous mechanism where there's actually simultaneous decision-making happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that is really nice. Um, uh, and... But I, I do, I do definitely like Machi Koro for that purpose of its simplicity. You know that you can, you know, maybe play with younger players, and it's, you know, right. Yeah, I mean, you do, you need different levels of complexity in order to cater to different people, basically. Yes, yes. There's so, definitely room in the low complexity level for sure. So I, I'm pretty excited about what you've offered for Majeling, but can you give me more of a story of it? Like, what's the you've given us the dynamics? Like, what's going to go on with the dice? How we're going to assign dice to right. make cards work? What is the story we're telling here? Yeah, so, uh, okay, so you are, in this game, a young mage, and the there is this thing called the Evertree. It's this ancient tree, it's this, and, you know, you can see the picture, but it's this enormous tree that just towers over the forest, and it's um, just a, sort of a nature spirit, and it's dying, and the oracles have said it's dying, and it's, um, you've been sent on a quest to get this rare potion to uh, heal it. Um, but the potion is in this place called the Cloud Chamber, which is at the top of this, what's called the Sky Tower of Aruim. And it's this ancient arcane sort of labyrinthine tower. And um, so this is about your adventure mm-hmm. to climb the tower and save the Evertree. But to do this quest, you need to um, basically create these scrolls. And scrolls will control things like uh, will let you summon creatures allies they'll let you cast spells and then use relics so those are sort of the four types of cards mm-hmm. and then there's five schools of magic which are sort of dimensions in the world that you draw these things from and so it's really story-wise it's somewhat open-ended because we want it to be every time sort of be a different tale that is told in the mind of the player. But um, as far as what is concrete is that it's a story about mages who grow in power to um, reach the level of of magical uh, power needed to save the Evertree. And each location that you enter 
you start in at the Evertree, you move into a place called Grimthorn Forest, it's sort of like a dark forest. And then you go to Rune City, which is this uh, magic powered metropolis, basically. And then in the heart of that is Arwen, this tower, which you, that's the fourth location is the tower. And then the final location is the Cloud Chamber, which is sort of the apex of Arwen. It's this place of incredible magic where you have just no idea what's going to appear in front of you. Mm. And so there's, um, uh, there are enter effects in the game. And so when you enter the cloud chamber, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen when you enter it. So it it, it kind of sets you up where you, you want to be ready to enter it. You want to be prepared. Mm-hmm. So a big part of the game is is this, it's kind of a classic choice in deck building games where, in, in a lot of games, where you want to build up, but you don't want to build up for too long. Otherwise, you someone else is going to win. Right, so you have to choose how much you want to build your spells and when you want to instead move forward on the adventure path, and um, but yeah, that's that's the basic the basic um, aesthetic is this sort of idea of gaining knowledge and getting strength and building this grimoire that is your own um, basically your own spell book, mm-hmm. and um, and it really came a lot from my playing um, uh, the Ascension. Uh, app for iOS, okay. which uh, I just became completely addicted to, helplessly addicted to, and uh, it it gave me a taste of what it was like to play a deck building game without any shuffling or card sorting or any of that stuff, discard piles, managing all yeah. this stuff, um, where it was just so fast and so streamlined, and you would every time make a different creation of cards. And you know every deck that you would build would be different, and so it would, there would be this creative aspect to it. And Mageling for me really captures that, where every deck you build—I mean, like we mentioned this on our web on our Kickstarter page—but you know there's over three billion combinations that are possible of Grimoire in the game. So there's just it's just three billion. Yeah, over three billion. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and this is a maximum of eight of eight scrolls. And it's 60 different unique scrolls. Every scroll is, is unique in the game. Mm-hmm. And so unlike a deck building game, you're not getting a bunch of something, right? You're just getting, you know, you're trying to create the perfect alignment of eight. And so, but you can replace some. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so you're constantly improving your tableau to exactly. match your needs as you go through the, right. the adventure. Right, and to try to create synergies and find new synergies. And it's really interesting because just as a designer, I mean, this is what I ultimately want to find is um, emergence in gameplay, like, you know, to make a game where things happen that you don't expect and they're not broken, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was what was really cool for me has been playing with, some, especially with some of the more advanced card game players, people who are competitive players, to do things with a game that I don't know are possible and to surprise me. Like the kind of chains that people do in Magic the Gathering. Where exactly. They know exactly how these cards are going to work together, and it's astounding what they do. Right, right, and so that's been that's been the challenge is to to some extent to to find those and make sure that they're not too broken, mm-hmm. right? Like I mean, as an ascension is guilty of this a few times. There's you know you can create infinite loops, yeah. and so we try to avoid that. Um, you know, actually broken things, right, where you just instantly win, but um, but but to create opportunities to do things that are surprising. Right, and so so there's effects like you know cards that let you mimic things, or, or you know cards that let you um, activate things you acquire. There's just just a lot of different subtle, simple but subtle differences in mechanism, and each school of magic has its own style. 
And so there's just a lot of room for creativity and exploration. So that, that's kind of, yeah, so that, that's a lot of my inspiration was, was the way the deck building games could be creative, mm -hmm. but, but trying to do that in a way that's a little bit more, um, a little quicker actually. You know, just like a, a, a little bit less management and a, a little bit more speed, you know, because... But with 8 billion combinations, that speed is not, you said 8 billion, right? Yeah, 8 billion combinations. Uh, yeah, but it, but that's of that's what I'm saying is of 8 cards. So, um, and that's a bit counterintuitive that it would be that many, but it's, you know, that's the way combinations... Well, it probably, I guess it probably means that each player can sort of find new combinations that match their needs if all those cards work perfectly together in that way so that you are building these amazing things to happen. Right, and there's probably not 8 billion good combinations, okay. right? Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, there's, you can fail miserably. Right, there's probably quite a few uh, of those that you know may not be optimal, but um, but there's also this interesting choice just that's inherent to the dice. So in a lot of games, uh, you can get away with specializing in a certain school or a certain, um, you, know, you know, there'll be types of cards or um, factions. And in Mageling, you can do that, but it's this give and take because you're rolling five dice. So the more different factions, or it's called in Mageling schools of magic, there are, the more chance that one of those dice will trigger something, right? So you can build all of one kind of magic, and that's going to have incredible synergy. But if you don't roll that die, it's no use to you. Yeah. So there's this sort of um, give and take there where you have to think about making your grimoire accessible as well as synergetic so it doesn't really let you as easily um, rely on the game's uh, factions or schools of magic to determine what your strategy is going to be you have to kind of be able to uh, think creatively and, mm -hmm. and put the puzzle together i love that creative aspect because that's something i want to get to uh, in a future episode is to talk about how games support creativity in players and it's Mm -hmm. um, not something that's been explored a lot. I don't think you know. There's things like, like uh, Once Upon a Time and Dixit and things like that that explore creativity a little bit. But I don't think anybody ever talks about how games explore creativity. So that that just gets me excited about future possibilities. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think I mean for me, creativity in games is huge, and it's one of the reasons why I love deck building games so much. Mm -hmm. And even just you know playing Clank, you know back to Clank. I mean. It was fun to think about our different, you know, how we were each approaching the puzzle that we were confronted with. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe it's not creativity in the sense of making a painting, but it's it's creative problem solving. It's how are right, we it's gonna... everyday creativity, which is there's two branches kind of a creativity, there's right? Creativity with a big C that's like, you know, Picasso and things like that. Right. And then there's everyday creativity where you're solving problems in uh, unique ways to, right. you know, you're, you're uniquely taking a problem you're going oh i finally see it you have that aha moment where it's, you've done something creative right and yeah so i mean that's something that really attracts me to games is and, and i think one of the things that i look for in a design is this idea of multiple um strategic directions that can be combined in various ways you know mm -hmm. so like being able to think about do i want to approach the game in this way or that way and hopefully there's a way to kind of do something in between um, uh, you know, multiple directions of creativity, uh, multiple paths to victory, not just sort of a linear, this is how you have to win. But, um, you know, I think chess is, you know, an example of a game that has 
has that. Lots of paths of creativity. There. It, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you can be a creative chess player and, and try strategies. That, I mean, maybe now there's they've all been explored. I have no idea. Yeah, it's maybe. Been, <laughs> it's been played so much. But but certainly over the court, over the life of the game, there's been many creative innovations. Um, and uh, without really changing the game itself, without... Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's it's pretty solid, right? Although there are variants that right. actually allow for new creative possibilities, and I can't remember who it was, but one of the chess champions um, introduced. Well, well, I don't know if he introduced the idea, but he he wanted to play this way, where you randomize your back row, mm-hmm. and oh. then the other person uh, mimics or, or aligns to that um, pattern. Okay. Right? So but you both are set up for the same back row, but the idea being that if you randomize it, all of a sudden you can't uh, you can't just memorize you know the path the optimal moves. You have to yeah. So it's not a matter of going into your data bank. Of, exactly. You know the Kasparov effect or whatever. Right. You know I don't know all this stuff. So right. I'm just making but it, this stuff exactly. Up but the Kobayashi Maru move. <laughs> right. But it, it, it forces you to think creatively then. Yes. Because all of a sudden you're well, now I have you're no idea what to do. Really having to know what happens four moves in advance. And right. I've never seen this scenario before. You have before, to invent so. a strategy for that. And that's one of the reasons why I love this idea of, um, and this is in Clank and, and Ascension, you know, this idea of cards that come out randomly, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and I think one of the things that um, when Justin Gary designed Ascension, he was kind of pushing against within Dominion was the idea that you would have fixed um, stacks of cards at the start of the game and you could basically come up with a strategy and then just implement that strategy throughout your game. So so the, the most strategic part of the game would be the very beginning where you determine what your strategy is going to be and then basically just implement it. And obviously there's more strategic moves than that, but when you introduce new cards into play you're immediately challenging the player to think, you know, on their feet about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, new things, new possibilities have been introduced into the space. Question for you. Have you ever played a game called The Duke? No. Okay. That's it is, got a chess aspect to it, yes. right? Yeah. It's a very chess-like game, except all of your pieces are in a bag. And you draw them out. And you put them on the board. There's an A side and a B side. The A side has a specific method that it moves. Either it'll move diagonals or one space forward, one space back, what have you. And they each have their own specific ability. So if you pull out the magician, or I, I can't think there's a piece called the magician, you put it down, it's going to act in a certain way. Right. Yeah. Just like in, in chess, you're trying to take the opponent's main piece. But to do that, there are different paths to doing that because you'll get a different set of pieces than your opponent does. And whenever that piece moves and activates a special ability, it flips to the B side and now it has a different special ability and a different set of moves. So until you move that piece again, it's not gonna flip over and get that other interesting ability. And each player's pieces are randomly drawn out of a bag and right. put onto the board. So you never know game to game, even which abilities you're going to have. Onitama right. has this aspect also where mm-hmm. you're you're choosing the move that you're going to use in the next turn, and you can see the turn coming up, so you know that they're going to have this ability while you have this ability. So you're trying to play against a randomized sort of thing where you're trying to get your piece back to their back line. They're trying to get their piece to back to your back line, but there's certain mitigating rules that keep you from moving things forward 
based on the rule set that you have on the card. So it's a fascinating little short, almost chess-like game. Right. Um, getting back to uh, your game, it's on the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. What day does it fund? What day okay, does it so, uh, next Tuesday. So the Tuesday of... So that's uh, going to be... Today's date is... can't believe I don't know today's date. Today's date is the 6th of the... the, the Sixth to the thirteenth is when it will end. Um, the, the, well, the fourteenth, you know, it'll it'll end at Tuesday night. Okay, so, so pretty much yeah. you have all day Tuesday. You have exactly. until all day Tuesday. All day Tuesday, um, and yeah, um, it's yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I'm excited. You know, for check it. it out, please. Uh, I'm hoping that we can get this up in a couple of days so that people will be able to hear this be, and hear you talk about it. That would be because awesome. it's really exciting, you know, hearing the the design stories of things because. We don't usually get that stuff. You know, I think Tom Vassell did it a lot on uh, Board Game University, but we don't always get those inside stories. And I think as gamers, that's kind of an artifact of our world that we need. Right. Well, it's, it's, um, I find it really interesting. And I love Board Game University. I was just um, saying that was, that's one of my favorite things that Tom Vassell has done. And I really, I love the Dice Tower. I mean, I, it's, they've really shaped a lot of my, uh, my, interesting games mm -hmm. um, and but that is definitely a gem all, all that stuff um, you know just hearing designers talk and yeah it's exciting to be um, you know in this place after working very hard you know I, I'm excited to have people showing the enthusiasm that they've shown you know and, mm -hmm. and to be close to funding is really you know it's kind of a dream to come true for me I mean I've um, I've been waiting for this so yeah it's 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 exciting and you know I mean on two levels really one is I'm happy to be able to sort of you know it's an enjoyable role for me I, I really love designing games but the other thing is that when you design a game a lot of times you're trying to create the game that you want to play mm -hmm. and so for me it's that's really exciting too is just to to see this creation um, actually manifest itself in, in finished form you know I'm, I'm very excited for that yeah so one more offshoot before we end our, our show here. And that offshoot is, so you had a background in working at a outdoor therapeutic camp, basically. Right. Um, and you had the opportunity to see how your implementations impacted the children that were that were there. I'm, I'm assuming it was a children's place, right? This was teen, teens, teen. yeah, yeah, teens. Usually those outdoor adventure places are teen-based. Yeah, so, so 14 to 17, I think. And this is a long shot sort of question to ask at this point, but was there anything that informed this game that you learned in that situation, or anything that informed any game you created that was informed by what happened there, based on you know the way you saw the the clients interacting with the material? Well, That's um, a stretch. the well, no, I mean I think I could better answer it if I talked about um, there's a second place I worked, okay, where um, because I think that 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 is a you know, from Mageling to there might be a stretch. I mean, I think I learned about emergence, which is, I think, a big thing for for games in general for me. But when I, um, I when I moved to Athens, I started working at a place called Rutland Academy, which is a um, therapeutic school. Mm -hmm. um, and they had, uh, we moved into a classroom one year where there was a game closet just filled with games. And I had the opportunity to bring and teach all these games to the students. 
Um, basically, there's a Fun Friday, which mm-hmm. is a reward for doing well over the course of the week. And See, we know somebody who does that. Yep. Right. So, so this was a um, this was kind of a reward. So I would go through. You know, I just happened that this classroom had this closet full of games and just a lot of little dice games. And so I got to really observe what um, what worked well with the most students. Right. So some games work well with one kind of person or, mm-hmm. or one sort of or someone else. another another game works with a different sort of group of people, age range. But there was one game that uh, really was king of the hill in that in that environment. And it was called Roll Up, I think it's called, Roll Up? Toss Roll Up, up. Toss, toss Up, up. Okay. that's what it was. Toss Up, yeah, it's such a hard name to remember, but Toss Up, and it basically was this um, push your luck dice game. Mm-hmm. And that really um, became the inspiration for the core mechanism of Mageling, even though it's evolved from yeah. that and it doesn't really resemble it anymore very much and no one would ever i don't think connect the two but but it was something about the excitement that i saw and the accessibility and also the tangibility of the dice i mean people just had a lot of fun mm-hmm. hitting these i mean one thing about toss-up is you get these huge numbers on your turn right so you're you're rolling like 60 points or you know 70 points sometimes just massive rolls mm-hmm. and um and uh there was something about that game that just, you know, and watching people interact with it and seeing how easy it was to plug into and connect to, that got me very interested in it. And so that, that was, that led to sort of um, what I felt like was my breakthrough in, in figuring out this uh, dice activation system. So it was the way they interacted with it that, that caught your attention. Yeah. I mean, Did I was, it? I was playing, I mean, well, what was your, your well, I so this is Fun Friday, so it's not yeah. quite supposed to be therapeutic, quote unquote. Right. But did you see it making? So one of the things that I, I like to say that we talk about is the way games transform us. Right. Is that what you're seeing there in those kids at that point? Well, yeah. I, I mean, okay. So it had a lot of the characteristics of any push your luck dice game, right? So you, but you know, you have to deal with the fact that the numbers are building so high and so the higher they go the more potential there is for loss Mm. and so you know it it really had this emotional dynamic going on where people were the excitement is just building and the hopefulness and the Mm -hmm. optimism and sometimes and then you have to um you know say okay i'm going to leave it right here and take my points yeah or you're going to roll further and you know, so I think that the fact that it could evoke those kinds of emotions and people could have those experiences of getting these massive turns, mm-hmm. you know, and a wide range of students could have that. So not just the smartest or the, you know, the most capable, but really anyone um, could do, could could tap into that experience of having those massive turns. And even though Majoring evolved kind of away from that, it still has a little bit of that in that where you'll see you can have these massive turns, right? So you can, especially in the end game, once you have a massive turn like that, the game's yeah. probably ending. Okay. But um, but, but that's but, what you want. You want a climax at the end. So Yes. Even, where even the other players are going, dude, no, you can't pull. Yes, you pulled it off. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. I lost, but that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you definitely saw the, the, the fact that you could, things could go wrong as well was, um, there were, there, I think that people did take some kind of lessons from that. I mean, obviously we weren't um, doing a lot of processing right, for Fun right. Friday, but but um, but I think that it had very very real um, 
because of the the sadness or the defeat that can happen, right? Where you're rolling this amazing turn and then you get one bad roll and then you've lost all that, yeah. all those points. Because of that negative feeling, the highs are all the much higher. So, you know, when you do get that, I mean, I think one person may, might have gotten 100 points or, you know, just the yeah. total amount of possible points. And, you know, it's just a memorable victory. And it's just that feeling of success. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that in that sense of future optimism where the next time maybe things don't go so well, you remember how it went that one time. And yeah, so if I can do it then, I can do it another exactly. time. Exactly, and I yeah. think that's, that's, you know, a big part of what I think works about games in a therapeutic setting is that idea of experiencing, you know, being able to experience loss in a safe environment, in a, fa in a safe really way. That's really important, I think. Uh, experience, and, and that's what I meant earlier about this idea of um, being your best self, right? So, like, your best self would maybe roll up to 99 and then lose everything, and then dust yourself off and try. Yeah, again, yeah. To right? lose gracefully and be able to say, "Okay, it was just a game. I, I can, I can move on." Or right, this. but maybe the game isn't even over. Maybe you've just gotten midway through, exactly, and then yeah. you just lost your big turn. But still, to so go I haven't on. thrown it all away yet. Exactly, and, and, and a lot of times in clients, I see like, "Okay, I failed. I can't do it," and I walk away for right. you know a long period of time, or maybe forever. Right. Well, giving up is a is a real, real. Uh, you know, it's a difficulty for, for people, you know, to keep going. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I really think toss-up actually has a lot of that drama in it. I mean, it has a lot of that, that feeling of you really see things go south very quickly and then you either carry on mm -hmm. or, or you don't. And um, But when you are successful, it's very memorable because, you know, you know when you're successful. It lets you know, you know. I mean, you get these, just like I said, massive numbers. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Mageling has something where, you know, you, you've got a, um, an energy chart to track your energy through turns where it might have a lot going on. It goes up to 19, but the token flips over to the plus 20 side. And it's always, that's always like a mark that you're, mm -hmm. you're having one of those turns, you know, when you flip over and now you're counting from 20, 21 higher, that's an epic turn and, you know, a good chance the game's about to end. But, um, you know, it's those, something about hitting those really high numbers mm -hmm. that is just tangible. It's just yeah. it's this tangible form of success. Even Clank had that, you know, bringing it back to Clank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, getting, I, I would suggest everyone who's listening go and get this game because I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. But getting out of the dungeon, even though I didn't make it completely out of the building, I died somewhere on the upper level. So the villagers still came and get me, and I still got my points. But that was such a visceral experience because I saw the amount of points that Joseph had, I saw the amount of points that Brian had, and I was thinking, man, I've really lost this thing. And I look at my points, and I'm like, I got pretty high up there. I didn't get yeah. near as high as 170, which is what Joseph got, but I don't remember what you got. I, I don't remember. I was just a little. I was a little bit behind you. Maybe about about ten points, twenty points, something like that. I, was I don't know. More like you were just a little bit above one hundred. Yeah. What what was your score on that one? A one seventy nine. One seventy nine. So yeah, probably about one twenty five, one thirty five, something like that. But I like my eighty seven or yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. the, well, the, the 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 big deal on that one was, I was I, I didn't care if I won that one. I beat Woody's expectations who didn't think I was even going to make it out of the dungeon. 
because I didn't have a key and I was relying on teleporting through all the yeah, locks. You, you definitely beat my and I fixes. and I pulled that off and I was so happy. I didn't I didn't care if I won or lost. I got out with the artifact that Woody went into the dungeon wanting to get. <laughs> I got that one and I got out. And yet I still feel okay about that because someday I'm going to take it from you. Yep. Well, <laughs> like you were saying with the with the other people you were playing with, you were kind of reserved with them. And you were were having conflicting emotions with me. You you don't have that. You can smack talk me all you right, want to right. because we. It's a different experience yeah. when you know somebody when you're yeah. playing a game, which is and, you know getting back to the game arama. That's why we go to things like that is for the camaraderie. Right, and I I, I don't have those reservations that Woody sometimes has. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes to my detriment. Sometimes not so much. But I I feel free even if I'm losing to smack talk a little bit because that's part of the fun for me and everyone who plays with me knows that they just they don't take me seriously and i'm never mean spirited about it but i take little pokes and jabs and i think sometimes that lets some people relax a little bit more around me because i'm I'm, also i'm i'm a gracious loser i have a lot of practice at it (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) i'm a very gracious winner too because it's so rare Frankly, I know I won at least one or two games at Gamerama, but I can't for the life remember which games I won. So I didn't take that information down either. So I, 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 I don't bother remembering which games I won or lost. I'm happy in the moment, and then 10 minutes later, I'm looking for a new game. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's about the experience of the game. Yeah. So, all about the path, not the destination. Exactly. <laughs> so any final words from you guys? You know, we've been talking about Majorly, we've been talking about Gamerama and, and Game Fest conventions, etc., is there anything you guys feel like we've missed that's important to talk about, or just kind of the open-ended spot of the show? I, I do have something to, to say. If you would like to comment on any of the episodes we've oh, put out yeah. so far, or on this episode, we now have a guild at BoardGameGeek.com. There, there, there have accidentally been two guilds made called Rolling for Change, both by me, <laughs> because I have a memory like a sieve, you're gonna want go. You're gonna want to go to the one that actually has the Pink Floyd style logo on it. The Rolling for Change logo. Rolling for Change dark logo. Side, yeah. Dark Side of the Moon. Um, that's the one that has the correct that has the picture on it. The other one was a bare bones one I made whenever we were coming up with the concept of the podcast, and then I forgot that I had them created. And we should see if we can get rid of that one. I've, I've already emailed them. Okay, they, they're, they're, they're going to take care of it. Okay. But until then, there are two rolling for changes out there, and only one of them has the big, this is who we are blurb and the uh, Dark Side of the Moon-esque um, yeah. meeple rolling for change insignia. So look for that one. That's where you comment the things at. The other one is going to go bye-bye very shortly. There's also been a pretty lively discussion group over on the uh, Facebook page for uh, the Geek Therapy Network, and uh, you guys are invited to go to this Facebook and join the Geek Therapy Network and come and talk to us. Uh, lots of people in the therapy field and education field and all these other places that are involved in geek therapy. Well, just uh, I want to thank you guys for having me. Yeah. And also welcoming me at the con and showing me Clank. That was that was really a highlight and. Uh, yeah, I just appreciate being being a guest on your show. Well, I look forward to seeing the, the, the solid physical inbox copy oh, yeah. of Majorly. You'll get a copy when it comes sure. out. You two can become famous if you meet us at a convention and beat us soundly <laughs> at one of our favorite games. <laughs> well, I made up for the, the punishing defeat that I 
suffered at the Ascension tournament at Gen Con. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. I, I played against the wrong people, I'm afraid. Or that the right would, people, however yeah, you Yeah, I was going to say, that would be... People going to Gen Con would probably really know their stuff when it comes to... Yeah. Yeah, I thought, I thought my... Um, you know, I thought I could hold my own, but apparently not. You're playing with the big boys. Oh, yeah. It was the big <laughs> leagues. I, I, I didn't know what I was in for. In fact, I was so amazed with my... Well, I wasn't amazed by myself, but I was surprised when I finally got an infinite combo in Ascension. And one of the... The first person that just obliterated me in Ascension, won the table... Um, we, we got to talking about these infinite combos and he showed me on his phone he had saved like eight different infinite combos and knew exactly how to build towards them. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I realized mm. what I had done wasn't actually all that special. <laughs> it was just par for the course for some people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us. It's been awesome talking to you. And uh, um uh, just to point out what Brian was saying, if you are a game designer, if you are a therapist, if you're an educator, if you are someone that is interested in talking to us on Rolling for Change, we would love to hear from you. So uh, you can write us at gamers at rollingforchange.com. We also have a Twitter feed, and that is at Rolling for Change. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody, for being here. And uh, we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. In this episode, we spoke with Joseph Butler, creator of the game Mageling. You can learn more about Mageling and offer your support on Kickstarter. If you'd like to contact us, we can be emailed at gamers at rollingforchange.com. Our Twitter handle is at rollforchange. Our theme music comes from Rocket Scientists. The track is titled Galileo and can be found off of their album Refuel. You can find them on Bandcamp and multiple online stores. Thanks so much for listening, and keep on rolling for change.